This message deals with the, uh, with the Word of God. But you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of all of them the Lord delivered me. And indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. A few weeks ago, Catherine, Co uh, Catherine Crosby, the widow of Bing Crosby, auctioned off her entire collection of what she called Bing a Brack. Sold in the auction were his platinum record for Silent Night, a plastic loving cup inscribed to the world's greatest dad from son Nathaniel, all of his fishing gear, and the Crosby family Bible. It was that last item that caught my attention. Now what does that signify? Does it mean that the Crosby family no longer needs a Bible? Or does it imply that Catherine feels that the Scripture would be of no use to her any longer? And I wondered who bought it. I wonder if they realized what a treasure they got. Or would they take that family Bible and put it on a shelf somewhere and point to it when people came to visit them like they would point to a rare Mickey Mantle baseball card? The Wallensians, a pre-Reformation group, often traveled around Europe um, as merchants dealing in precious gems in order to gain access to the families of nobility. And after they would show their rings and their trinkets, if they were asked, do you have anything else to sell? They would say, yes, we have jewels that you have not seen that are more precious than anything in the world. And we'll be glad to show them if you'll promise not to betray us. We have a precious stone that is so brilliant by its light you can see God. And another that radiates a fire that will kindle the love of God in the heart of the possessor. And unwrapping their bundle, they would reveal a Bible. 
and the coronation of the Queen of, of uh, England, Queen Elizabeth, several years ago, a high moment came where the Archbishop of Canterbury, right in the middle of the coronation, said to the Queen, Your glorious majesty, I want to give you the most valuable thing that the world affords. And he handed her a Bible. And this woman whose wealth contains priceless jewels and land and palaces nodded her agreement as she received it. I wonder if you and I believe that. I'm told that a 90-year-old ophthalmologist in Philadelphia who still practices said that people used to come to him when he first began practicing with the eye problems. People would come to him complaining, asking for his help, complaining that they couldn't read the Bible. Now he said they come complaining that they cannot read the telephone directory of the racing farms. According to a Gallup poll, 60% cannot name the four Gospels and 70% do not know that what Jesus said to Nicodemus was, you must be born again. I've heard the Bible called my owner's manual to my new lease on life. But how are we going to know about this new life and the God who gives it? And how are we going to know how to get it if we know nothing about the Bible? A Sunday school teacher asked her pupils one day, can anybody name the first book in the Bible? A little boy's hand shot up. He just knew the answer was preface. So what I'm going to say this morning is really a preface to all that I should say and I will say about this most valuable thing that the world affords. And what I want to say this morning about the Bible is that it transcends, it transforms, and it trains and I want to use Blaylock's translation of verse 6. And he says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach doctrine and correct false ideas. And it straightens out one's life and it trains in upright living. First of all, it transcends. I am told that King Louis XIV of France was not just a worldly monarch, but that he wanted, he desired a kind of a balcony view of religion. He liked to listen to preachers preach, as strange as that may seem. And one day he was sitting in this audience and a certain Monsignor began his address with unadulterated flattery. And he said, Your Majesty, if the world stood here where I stand to address you, it would not say, Blessed are they that mourn, Rather, it would say, Blessed is the prince that never fought except to conquer and whose name fills the universe. And I can just hear that monarch purring his approval. But, sire, he continued, the language of the Bible is not the language of the world. The language of the world in our time is a language of materialism. And the things that are really real, we think, are the things or the materials that you can mark and measure and manipulate and possess. But the word is out that this universe of ours is enormously vast and it cannot be confined in a test tube and it cannot be smeared on the, on the slide for a microscopic examination and it cannot be calculated by dollars and cents. 
that technology and treasure cannot satisfy the human heart. For as St. Augustine said, St. Augustine said years ago, the human heart is restless until it finds its rest in God. But where do you find God? Where does a man find Him? You find Him in the Bible. And where is this language that transcends materialistic mutterings of our day? You find that language in the Bible. It's God language. Now, if you want me to get to know you, you've got to want me to get to know you. As a personality, you can shut me out and refuse to tell me about yourself, and I'll never get to know you unless you talk to me. I can know something about you by the way you dress, and I can tell something about you when I shake your hand, but I'll never get to know you until you talk to me, until you tell me what's on your heart, what troubles you. And I'll never get to know you until you tell me what your problems are, who your acquaintances are. You've got to talk to me before I get to know you. That's why the Bible. God wanted us to know Him. Not just His will or the law would have been enough. Not just His power and wisdom or nature would have been enough. Not just His love for beauty or the, bird, the song of a bird and the beauty of a rose would have been enough. He wanted us to know Him and so He gave us His Word. This is God's Word. And like the Negro preacher I heard in Fort Worth say, that his illiterate grandmother would gather their grandchildren around her feet and she couldn't read the Bible. She would just hold it in her hands and rub the pages between her hands and say with the greatest reverence, Oh, chillin', this is God's Word. God spoke. And when He spoke, He didn't speak in a language that half the people couldn't, under, couldn't, couldn't understand. When He spoke, He spoke finally in the language of a person. He sent His Son and he said, you want to get to know me. This is what I'm like. You want to know about me. Look at Jesus. He tells all there is about me. And this Christ was in the beginning face to face with God. And the Word was flesh, was, was God, and was made flesh. And no man has seen God at any time, yet the only begotten of the Father hath declared Him. And God spoke His final word in Jesus. It's what Martin Luther, calls, Martin Luther calls the Bible the manger where God's Son is laid and says, quote, As the wise men and the shepherds through eyes of faith saw God's incarnate Word in a manger of straw, we through eyes of faith see God's incarnate Word in a manger of paper and print. Now what did God say when He spoke in His Son? He said He loved us. He didn't just stay in heaven to say He loved us and declare it from a distance. He came in the person of His Son to fully disclose Him, to say God's final word about Him. Just think of it. The great physician makes a house call. And by His birth He said, I identify with you and I feel with you. And by His death He said, I sacrifice myself for you. And by His resurrection He said, I've gained the victory for you. And God's final word is a word to all of us, come unto me. What a word from God. It transcends all other books because it tells us about Christ. For where do you find Jesus except in the Bible? 
If you take away the pages of the Scripture, you'll find only a few references to a man who lived 2,000 years ago. And the Bible transcends all attempts to destroy it. The record of the survival of the Scriptures is so remarkable that it can only be explained in terms of divine providence. There's never been a time when this Scripture did not need opposition. But history has proven that the Bible will not drown and it will not burn and it will not be torn asunder for it has a power behind it that protects and promotes it. In 303, the emperor of Rome was Diocletian and he led an assault, an onslaught against the Bible the likes of which history has never seen. Every manuscript that could be found he burned. Every copy of the scriptures that he could find, he destroyed. And Christians by the thousands who had laid claim to the scripture were martyred. They were killed by the thousands. And finally, when every manuscript was destroyed and every copy was burned, he erected a column over the embers of the scripture with this inscription, Extinct is the name Christian. And just three years after that, Three years after that, Constantine became the emperor of Rome and he declared the Bible to be the word of truth and he offered a reward to anybody who could discover and deliver a copy of the scriptures to his officials and in less than four hours, 50 copies of the Bible were brought out of hiding. And men have literally given their lives for the scriptures. Wycliffe, decided that he wanted the Bible to be translated in the language of the common people. And for that he was harassed. His books were burned and he was persecuted. And because he died before he himself was burned, they dug up his bones and they burned his bones. And they scattered the ashes over a river so that nobody could build a monument where he was buried. Such was the, the treatment of a man who believed in the Bible. Tyndale was credited with publishing the first English Bible and because of that he was hunted and captured and strangled and burned. His last statements were, Oh God, open the eyes of the King of England. And God speedily answered his prayer. In less than four years, King Edward VIII of England authorized the publishing of what he called the Great Bible of England. And the Tyndale Coverdale edition of the scriptures was published in 1535 and a copy of it was chained to every pulpit in every church in England. The Bible lives on. And Voltaire, the great French infidel and atheist, said, before the century of my life is over, there won't be a Bible except one that some curiosity seeker looks upon. And before the century of his life was over, he died. And strangely enough, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and his printing press and from the very place he lived began to crank out Bibles by the million and were sent over Europe. And a hundred years to the day after he died, Voltaire died, his copy, his first edition, the first edition of Voltaire's works were sold in a French market for 11 cents and on that very same day, the British government paid the Tsar of Russia $500,000 for the Kodak Sinaiticus, a copy of the Scriptures. 
And, George, and Bertrand Russell stood one day to say, this Bible, before I die, will be in a morgue. Fifteen years after he made that statement, Bertrand Russell was in a morgue and the Bible was as alive as ever. I tell you, this word is forever because God wants us to know himself. It transcends all other books. And it transforms. As Blaylock's translation has it, it straightens out a man's life. An atheist watched one day, watched as a guy at work where he worked, an unlettered, uneducated man would bring a copy of the scriptures every day in his lunchbox. He made fun of him. He questioned him because he knew the man was, was unlettered and uneducated. He questioned him about some apparent contradictions in the scripture. He just got his tongue all tangled up trying to explain. And he challenged him about the validity of the miracles and the man had no answers and so he embarrassed him in public every time he got a chance and one day this man said and finally in the presence of others who were there watching and listening he said i know i don't know much about the scripture but i know a few years ago i was a drunkard my wife was broken-hearted my children feared me i couldn't hold a job and I decided that I would come to the Bible, I would return to the Bible. And I gave my heart to the Lord. And I began trying to live by everything I understood in the Bible. I just took it like it said. Now he said, I'm sober. My wife is happy. My children love me. And I'm holding a good job. I don't understand what the Bible says, but I know enough about it that it has changed me E.M. Reeve was the most distinguished scholar of his day. His translation of Homer into modern English is still the standard. He was an atheist and rejected the scripture. But he was commissioned by a publishing company to translate the New Testament Greek into English. His son said, as his father began to do that work, I wonder what dad's going to do with the Gospels. But most importantly, he said, I wonder what the Gospels are going to do with dad. Years later, he found the answer. For E.M. Reeve said, while I was doing this work, a strange feeling came over me. My work changed me. For I believe now that these scriptures, these words, have the mark of the Son of Man and the Son of God upon them. They are the Magna Carta of the human spirit. The scriptures transform us. They transform us because the scriptures confront us with ourselves. Every time God speaks in the Bible, man is brought up short before him in his need. And so God walked in the cool of the evening in the Garden of Eden and he asked Adam a question that brought him up short and stripped him of all of his pretenses. He said, Adam, where art thou? A question not so that God could find where Adam was, but so Adam could find where he was. And every time God speaks, man is brought up short. And so man stands before the law and the scriptures and he realizes he's a sinner. And he stands before Christ in the scriptures and he understands the mercy of God. But he also in the white light of that purity and holiness of Christ, he understands that he himself has missed the mark. 
and he understands he's a sinner. And I turn to the pages of this scripture and I see myself and the arrogance of Moses and in the passion of Samson and in the leisurely license of David and I see myself in the cowardice of Simon Peter and in the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and in the emptiness of Nicodemus and in the loneliness of the prodigal in the far country and I see myself there. God confronts me in the pages of this scripture. And in that confrontation, he changes me. I want you to listen to this. Most staggering, perhaps, word I've found in the Word of God, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. A roll call of the scum of the earth, the riffraff, he said. Then he says, now, now, now remember, he's writing this to the Christians in Corinth and he lists these names of these vile men with vile practices. And then he says, and such were some of you. And they were transformed by the revealing, transforming Word of God. Not a pretty picture, but a realistic one describing what we were like before God's Word transformed us, changed us. You say it won't work? Yes, it will. The God who hung the, straw, the, the universe in space can help that person who hangs out the daily wash. And the God who put the sweetness in the, in the honeycomb can sweeten the sour disposition of any man. And the majestic majesty of a God who can move the seasons just like we are now experiencing can move a man to, to, to a brand new beginning. And the God who could hush the violent storm on the Sea of Galilee can hush that violent, those violent words that come erupting out of your lips to cause such pain and hurt that you yourself regret 15 minutes later. This word transforms. And this word trains. It is true that the Bible speaks forthrightly on such subjects as marriage and divorce human sexuality and human relationships upon such items and such subjects as war and peace and how to treat your neighbor and how to raise your children and the church. The, relev the relevancy of the Scripture is not in knowing it or even believing it. The relevancy of the Scripture is living it and it makes a difference. Trains. Now obviously the medical books that you have on your shelf at home were not written in order to limit your behavior. I mean surgeons and physicians didn't get together one day and just develop a system of uh, thou shalts and thou shalt nots to keep you from doing what you want to do or like to do in life. No, as a matter of fact, those medical books summarize the wisdom of the ages as to what is best for the well-being of your body. And that's the only intention that medical science has. 
likewise the Bible. This book is not a system of thou shalts and thou shalt nots that'll keep you from enjoying what's good in life, keep you from doing what you want to do. This book is the conclusion of God and man as to what is best for life. So that if you live by this book, you find the abundant life. You find how to best raise your children. You find how to have a good marriage. You find out how to live with your neighbor. You find out how to live, period. Picture, if you will, a college freshman going into the laboratory. He has in his hand the textbook, chemistry textbook. He has the experiment and he has his notebook to take notes. And in the textbook it tells, that textbook contains the rules of the chemistry experiment. And if he follows that text just like it says, then the experiment works. I mean, it's just like it says, it just works. And so he happily fills out his notebook as he makes notes concerning the experiment. Everything's going great, everything's fine. Because he's adventuring on the basis of the rules of the book. And one day he notices that the teacher's not around. And he decides, I wonder what, I wonder if how chemical A would mix with chemical B, even though the book says don't do that. And so he gets the chemi chemicals and he mixes them together. And when they come down off the ceiling, uh, the, the notebook is splattered with the evidence that it doesn't work. Doesn't work. Now you're free to live by this book and you're free not to. You're free to go by the pages of God's Word and you're free not to. But I want you to know that the people who live by God's Word are the people who have a happy and successful life and the road of human history is strewn with the wreckage that when a man departs from it, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Now let's be honest. If the relevancy of the Scripture is in living by it, most of us have trivialized the Bible and made it apply to safe subjects like love that we really, uh, that's kind of uh, uh, equated to... Uh, uh, something mushy and maudlin to faith which we really equated with luck and we open up the pages of the Word of God and we and we say yes the whole world needs the Lord but what about what are you doing about the destitute and the lonely and the hungry and the lost who live next door to you or at least no farther than across town the Bible says something about those also and we open up the pages of, of the Bible as we lay it beside the newspaper in the morning when we have our morning devotional and we, and we uh, regret about the, and we, we mourn the disintegration of the modern home and modern marriage. And yet is your home a place of praise and worship? The Bible says something about that also. And we talk about believing the Bible and living by it. Are you a tither? Do you even want to be? Do you teach Sunday school? Would you even like to try? The relevancy of the Scripture is not in debating it. I'm really disturbed this morning as I'm aware of the fact that some people in their attempt 
to, uh, to defend the Bible have literally slandered good men they call liberal. And I ask you, is it really right to slander someone else and air the Scripture in our defense of the inerrancy of the Scripture? I don't think so. And I think the relevancy of this Word of God is to take it and to apply the uplifting, transforming, training power of it to daily living. And it's no value sitting on the shelf as a baseball card. And I guess Amy Dickinson, Emily Dickinson, um, said what I'm trying to say when she said, He ate and drank these precious words, and his spirit grew robust. And he knew no longer that he was poor or that his frame was dust. But he danced along the dingy days and this bequest of wings was but a book what liberty a loosened spirit brings. And I think in a sense God has bequeathed us with wings. Wings to help us to rise above this material world and come into His presence. Wings that help us to overcome this dingy world and this frame of dust. Wings that transform us from caterpillars to butterflies. Wings that fly us in the right direction. And yet... Will you bow your head with me? Father, we rejoice that you have spoken in a word that transcends by a word that transforms with a word that trains. And I pray, Father, that now we shall receive your word, living word, and live by him. We shall accept your written word and follow it to the new life you want us to live. To the glory of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, whose name I pray. Now there are three invitations that I offer this morning. Will you listen carefully? The first invitation is for you to come today in response to the invitation of God to receive the living word. Jesus Christ is, is alive and present in the universe, in the world. He wants you to come. He wants you to Invite him into, his, into your life to be your friend, to be your savior. Perhaps you've trusted in Jesus at another place, maybe in your home, in the privacy of your own home or somewhere such as that. Jesus never called disciples secretly. He wants you to come publicly before men, before women. Take your stand for Jesus Christ. In his word, he said, 
that if you will confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. So I want you to come this morning. The invitation of God is for you to come and receive Jesus Christ, trusting Him and Him only. The way you become a Christian is not by trusting in creed or, or church or rule, baptism. It's trusting in Jesus only. Have you ever trusted Him? Out of the pages of this book steps the living Christ to come into your life and be your Savior. Second invitation we offer, these are simultaneous, is for you to come and place your life in the church. If the Holy Spirit knew of any other way to get the gospel out and to do God's work other than the church, He would have told us, this is the way. Come and join us. Maybe God is leading you as a college student, as a new person in this community come and place your life in First Baptist Church or perhaps you're saying in your heart of hearts this morning I'm not living by God's word to him that knows to do good and does it not to him it is sin bring your life in line today with the word of God begin to live by it and watch it train and transform you into life that's really life now it's easier to do it on the first word of the invitation. So you step right out, and we're going to be praying in our heart that you'll come right on the first as we stand to sing. Come on. <laughs>